I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Uh, Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Adam Schatz, and my guest today is Mike Davis. Mike, a professor at the University of California, Riverside, is one of America's most original social critics and writers. He's written on labor, policing, architecture, and public health, on the history of famines, forest fires, slums, and car bombs. His many books include a science fiction novel for children, a classic study of Los Angeles, City of Quartz, and a prophetic book about the avian flu, The Monster at Our Door, recently reissued as The Monster Enters. It's safe to say that no historian has so successfully integrated the study of social class with the study of science and the environment, or for that matter, scholarship and activism. Mike is also a former truck driver and revolutionary activist, experiences that have allowed him to fuse the abstract and the concrete with unusual flair, most recently in a new history of the Los Angeles left in the 1960s, Set the Night on Fire, co-written with John Wiener. In 1997, I profiled Mike for the now-defunct magazine Lingua Franca. It was abundantly clear that he was already preparing for the worst. I'd never heard someone speak so eloquently or convincingly about the risk of a slide into barbarism in American politics. But what seemed apocalyptic about Mike's work at the time now seems stunningly prescient. Not just his warnings about the far right and the spread of draconian police and surveillance systems in poor urban communities, but his predictions about the growing threat of climate change and pandemics. Uh, Mike, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here with you on the LRB podcast. Thank you, Adam. Curious, Mike, you're in San Diego. Um, Are people lining up at the polls already? Uh, It's hard to say because uh, I think most people here voted by mail. In California, the state actually sends you your ballot. So uh, I think millions of people have already voted by mail. In any event, uh, the outcome in California, apart from a few congressional races, you know, is already certain uh, that Biden will win by a huge majority. And Californians, despite being the most populous state with the largest economy, are in many ways uh, disfranchised in elections because of the Electoral College. So, and also, of course, in the Senate, Wyoming, with less than a million people, has the same representation in the Senate it does California with uh, 40 million people. And uh, Clinton, of course, built up a huge surplus uh, vote in California, enabling her to win the popular vote in 2016. Uh, but because of the Electoral College, it didn't matter. So 
the elimination of the Electoral College should be one of the highest uh, priorities in the incoming administration to put this on the uh, ballot across the country in the form of a new amendment. I mean, it's it's one of the many kind of foundational aspects of American politics of which we've become acutely aware in the last few years, the obstacles to majority rule in American society. Well, you know, what's uh, paradoxical in, in some ways is that the beginning of the 20th century in the progressive era, there was a very broad feeling that the Constitution was inadequate, that something had been drawn up by uh, slave owners and uh, rich merchants in pre-industrial era was totally out of touch with the reality of rapidly industrializing America. And one of the most uh, powerful critics of the Constitution was no less than Woodrow Wilson, uh, professor of government at Princeton University before he became uh, president. And then in in the 1920s and 30s, thanks in many ways to Charles Beard's famous book, The Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, but also the fact that labor during the Depression was faced with a totally hostile Robert Barron uh, Supreme uh, Court. Issues of constitutional reform, or in the case of the Supreme Court, it's really just a matter of, of Congress because nothing in the Constitution specifies the size of the Supreme Court. And now, today, we live in a landscape that's been totally changed by the Federalist Society, uh, the right-wing legal society with thirty or 40,000 members that's been the leviathan in, in pushing uh, uh, an originalist and literalist interpretation of the Constitution. In other words, for very many people on the Republican right and for evangelicals, the Constitution has to be interpreted literally in the same way that they interpret the, the Bible. And Democrats have accepted this, this terrain in terms of political debate and judicial principles. If anything, uh, I mean, you look at any of the Democratic candidates and they praise the Constitution. They too, they too share in this sacralization of the Constitution, even if their interpretation is not an originalist one. Actually, that's a, that's a problem that, uh, that Dan Lazar wrote about in his book, The Frozen Republic, that was published in the late 90s. Yes, indeed. It's an important book. But what is at stake right now is will progressives in the new Congress and with a new president, assuming that Biden wins, push the issue of constitutional reform, as well as uh, rule changing uh, in Congress, eliminating the filibuster, for instance, and putting the uh, Supreme Court under a spotlight now that we otherwise will face 20 years or 30 years of ultra-conservative interpretations and rulings. And we're speaking on the day that Amy Coney Barrett is expected to be confirmed, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And um, you don't mind, this segues into another topic, which is the significance of her appointment in Trump's re-election strategy. Now, when liberals talk about swing voters, they tend to fall on the tracks of Hillary Clinton, 
and talked mainly about white suburban women and winning a portion of those away from the Republican Party. But from the Republican point of view, the point of view of Trump's campaign managers, there's two crucial swing votes that are essential to victory in a week. One of those is the Catholic vote, and the other is the Latino vote, and they overlap to some degree, although I don't think people understand that only 55% of Latinos uh, identify as Catholic. There's no longer a, a Latino Catholic monolith. Now, in 2016, Trump won the Catholic vote, 53%. But in a sense, it really wasn't a Catholic vote. There's two Catholic votes. He won white Catholics uh, by a two-thirds majority. But three-quarters of Latino Catholics voted for Clinton, although he enlarged the share of previous Republican candidates, Romney, by about 5%. And that's really crucial. I want to just to ask you a question about that, Mike. You've, you, you know, you've written for years about uh, the Latino community in California, for example. Given that, that, that Trump has presided over the most xenophobic policy vis-a-vis the border of any president in recent memory, uh, to the point of caging women and children and separating parents and their children. In fact, 545 children are still separated from their parents. Given this, how do you account for the fact that he's doing a little better among Latinos still than previous Republican candidates? Yes, indeed. And the Latino surge to the Democrats really hasn't happened. But if you look at it uh, in more detail, in New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and of course, California, uh, the Latino vote is massively Democratic. Florida, we set on the side because a large minority of the Latino vote are Venezuelans and, and Cubanos although younger Cubans have tended to vote more and more Democratic over the years. The weak link in all of this is Texas. And the Biden campaign, as uh, Julian Castro, the mayor of San Antonio who ran in the primary, and then wasn't allowed to participate in the convention, wasn't given a slot to speak at the convention, he and Beto O'Rourke, Uh, went publicly uh, the other day to criticize the campaign because right now polls show that Biden is almost neck and neck with Trump. And Trump's advantage seems to be amongst uh, Spanish surname people in, in Texas. But their point, their protest was that Texas is the future of American electoral politics. It would be the historic victory if Democrats run it. The Democratic national campaigns have never put money or invested in Texas. And right now it seems to be the absolute crucial moment when they could swing the state. Do you attribute Trump's strength among voters in Texas with uh, Spanish names to the positions that he's staked out on things like abortion? Is, that, is it a reflection of social conservatism among some of these voters? Yeah, well, it will be, it would be to some degree because uh, observant Catholics who go to mass at least once a week, like Joe Biden, you know, himself, tend to be uh, 
most Republican segment. But there are other issues as well. I mean, the Tano community has a very large business class, which votes Republican probably, you know, straight out of the same reason that chamber of commerce types everywhere in the United States tend to be uh, be Republicans. But most of all, it's the deficit of, of advertising and campaigning, the lack of investment in the most strategic state in the union, because Texas a long time ago became a majority-minority state. Anglos are no longer a majority in Texas. So the demographics uh, have supported through many years now, uh, a Democratic majority. I want to ask you another question about Catholicism. I mean, you, in your writing on the American working class, for example, you've long paid considerable attention to the politics of religion, by which I mean not uh, religious sentiment so much as sectoral and one could say tribal politics among religious groups in American society. Now, the Trump administration includes a, a, a number of, of figures of the, the, the hard right, the hard Catholic right. I'm thinking of Eugene uh, Scalia, uh, Scalia's son, who was um, the subject of a devastating piece of reporting in The New Yorker recently by AL Press, um, and uh, William Barr. And now we have Amy uh, Coney Barrett. And yet this is taking place at the very moment that the Vatican is moving or seems to be moving in a much more progressive direction, uh, to the, even on issues like uh, uh, gay civil unions. Well, there's, of course, a war that's been going on for decades within the Catholic Church in uh, the United States. When John Paul II became pope, he inaugurated essentially a counter-revolution against uh, progressives and liberation theologists in the church, and his appointments loaded the U.S. hierarchy uh, with people who, time and time again, not only taken positions against women's right to choose, but have openly campaigned in one way or another for Republicans, most lately the Cardinal of New York, Cardinal Dolan, who appears on Fox and Friends uh, uh, regularly, and... Um, takes photo opportunities with uh, President Trump. However, Pope Francis has tried to reverse that. And now 60% of the hierarchy in the American church have been appointed by Francis, most likely the, the investor of uh, Bishop Gregory of Baltimore, Washington, D.C., is a cardinal, the first black cardinal in the church. Somebody who took a fairly brave stand when uh, the Knights of Columbus following Trump's famous uh, stunt were used tear gas and uh, federal uh, police to clear his way for a photo opportunity in front of a church that didn't want him there in the first place. So you have this civil war going on in the hierarchy and amongst the, the laity. And one of the more encouraging signs is that while Trump still has a greater than usual share of, say, the Latino vote in, in, in Texas, though it's still, you know, majority Democratic, he seems to be losing ground amongst white Catholics. And uh, he won Catholic vote 53% in 2016, but he won the uh, uh, white vote by more than two-thirds. Uh, uh, and that's changing. 
And so this is something that the Trump campaign has made a major priority of. And, of course, you're right. The, the Trump administration is, is more Catholics in it than uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy's administration. And if now that Barrett has been approved to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court consists now of seven Catholics and two Jews. First time there's not been a Protestant. Gorsuch, another Trump appointee, is a Catholic who worships in his wife's Episcopal Church but uh, it's remained equivocal whether he's a Catholic or not. And this is astonishing. And it's much to the Federalist Society in which Catholic jurors, conservative jurors, lawyers and judges play such an outsized uh, role. But conservative Catholics may be a declining force. And the Catholic vote is much more plastic and changeable than evangelical support. Evangelical support for Trump remains absolutely rock solid, despite a major plague, the crashing of the economy, every, everything else. Not, not even COVID has dampened their enthusiasm. Yes. Mike, you know, I suspect that when we first met in, in 1997, if either of us had predicted that in 2020 we'd have a president who brazenly states that he might not accept the results of the election if he loses, openly stokes the flames of white nationalist violence, the other would have raised his eyebrow. Uh, and if either of us had added that all this would be happening in the midst of the country's largest protests against racism and in the middle of a pandemic whose gravity the president has sought to belittle or deny, and against the backdrop of the, of the forest fires in Northern California, I think if either of us had said this, the other would have said, what have you been smoking? So, you know, Mike, as a, as a longtime radical without any illusions about the American dream, has the Trump administration still shocked you in its brutality and recklessness? Uh, how do you understand this, this surreal and very disquieting moment in American history? Do you see it as a culmination of the darker currents in our history, from white supremacy to the paranoid style of governance? Is it a rupture or is it both? Well, I have to say, first of all, speak about this biographically, autobiographically. I have friends in the Bay Area, for instance, who don't know a single Republican. I grew up amongst Republicans and in Fontana, right? No, I was born there, but I grew up in eastern San Diego County, a block away from the Mormon temple, two blocks away from the Baptist uh, church. So it never seemed to me that we should be talking about the 1% of the population. Because if you look back in American electoral history, the far right can rely on somewhere between 37 and 42 percent of the vote. 1936 election, the Goldwater election, and so on. And the failure to understand the political sociology of this large minority of the population, which consists first and above all in a kind of consistent historical way of country club elites, uh, chamber of commerce types, you know, Mr. Big in small town or uh, city to understand their opposition to almost any kind of progressive reform. 
In other words, I think the left in America has failed to understand the property-owning middle classes and the kind of lower rungs of of the rich and the role that they played historically to our peril. This is why I was a critic in some ways of Occupy New York, because the 1% slogan appealed to a kind of mobilization, populist mobilization that's been historically impossible to achieve. I also was critical because it raised, it was centered on the question of income inequality, where the real question is economic power, the democratization of economic power. But looking back now, we see uh, our arrival at the kind of uh, ultimate stage of Reaganism. All the seeds for the Trump administration, you know, were planted in the 1980 election. And this hopefully will be, could be the, you know, the final confrontation with that legacy. Or it could lead to its continuation as Democrats, you know, have time and time again accepted the terms of Reaganism and tried to make it uh, uh, more, more human reforms here and there, but not confronted the vast task of trying to reshape the American economy in the image of working-class people to the extent that's possible without greater social ownership. Now, it's interesting that in the coronavirus crisis, it's put the question of public ownership square on the agenda. Amazon, this is an essential public utility, and you can't really break it up, perhaps, but it makes it possible for people on the left to argue that this should be like public utilities were at the beginning of the 20th century, when the, not only the socialists, but progressive Republicans raised the demand for public ownership, the same as the, uh, uh, the web. You know, socialist demands, as say different from New Deal demands, have a, an anchor in reality right now that they haven't had for generations, I think. In your 1986 book, Prisoners of the American Dream, you you wrote about the emergence of the new right as a social movement that transformed the Republican Party, catapulted Reagan to victory, pushed the Democratic Party further and further to the right. And as you just said, the seeds of the Trump moment uh, are to be found in the the, the in Reagan's uh, movement. You also warn that the new right might be further radicalized by neoliberalism, which in a sense is what we've seen over the last several years. But I'm wondering, how does the new right of today differ from the coalition of single interest groups that Reagan assembled in 1980? Well, one of the most remarkable things about American politics today has been the recession of the Fortune 500 from a dominating role. Uh, within the Republican Party and national politics. Reagan won with the support of an unprecedented corporate mobilization organized by the Business Roundtable, which grouped together the very biggest corporations in America. Now you see a, uh, a, a political arena where some of the most important interests influencing uh, Trump and the administration are are small-town billionaires, the kind of lumpen billionaire class, the DuVois family from uh, Grand Rapids, 
the coaches, coaches, the, you know, all these small town or city people who were able to elevate themselves into uh, a great wealth and act through their political action committee and, and, and dark money. And they facilitated the takeover of the Republican Party by the far right. This is the first example in the advanced industrial countries of a traditional conservative party being taken over by the alt-right. And so hardcore Reaganites of the, of the 1980s, or there's survivors in, in, into this decade, are now all but excluded from, uh, from the party. The Reagan revolution has uh, unleashed forces uh, which have overthrown its, uh, its original leaders in, in cadre. Newt Gintridge uh, counts as probably a moderate Republican uh, today compared with what we see. And I think in some ways this is a death cult in the sense that this broad class of wealthy and rich people who generally control the political system in rural America and, and in Rust Belt, small industrial city America after decline, their basic uh, morality is to consume all the good things of life in their lifetime and leave nothing for the generations to, to come. They have a kind of vampirish relationship to society, to the planet, and to the future. Right, but they've, they've succeeded in forging an alliance, uh, an alliance of convenience. Let's say the, some of the Greenwich Republicans that Evan Asinos wrote about recently in The New Yorker uh, with uh, members of uh, what's been called, accurately or not, the white working class. Um, now, in your book and your history of the American working class, um, you began by talking about why uh, the American working class, unlike its counterpart in Western Europe, had failed to produce a labor or socialist party of enduring impact. And you pointed to a number of causes. Obviously, um, racism and ethno-national division was one of them, but the analysis is too rich to summarize here. I'm wondering, um, is white working class an accurate description of this group's class position and why, in your view, do so many of its members, white men above all, seem so attached to a failed and corrupt plutocrat and even even imagine that he represents the so-called common person? Is racism, nativism, white fears of losing ground, is that a sufficient explanation in your view? Um, well, the analysis of the election as the mass conversion of formerly Democratic or even Obama-supporting uh, white workers is something I really not uh, accepted. Right after the 2016 election, I analyzed 15 uh, counties, industrial counties, Rust Belt counties in the upper Midwest, uh, Great Lakes area. And in each case, the swing to the Republicans occurred against the background of continuing plant closures and job losses, some of them, uh, you know, massive, you know, uh, incredibly destructive for the community. And Clinton, of course, had nothing really to say 
to those groups of people. And that, I think, explained a protest vote uh, against Clinton. And for somebody who'd least talked about bringing jobs back home and uh, putting tariffs on China and so on. Now, the big question that this will be answered in the next few weeks, have this section of, of northern white workers who voted for Trump after having been previously Democrats, and not necessarily a very large number, but it was crucial in a number of battleground states, have they now been, in a sense, uh, Hitler talked about the need to conquer the soul of the German working class. Has Trumpism conquered uh, their soul? I'm dubious about that. Where the white working class is massively Republican is in the South and in the border South and in uh, the deep South, in right-to-work states where anti-union propaganda uh, is constant and intense, where organizing struggle after organizing struggle has been defeated by the coalescence of evangelical leaders and local business groups against, uh, I mean, because much of the American auto industry is no longer in the Great Lakes or the Northeast. It's in the uh, border, even deep south. And this is something that, of course, needs to be explained first, first and above all by racism and by the mass conversion of white Southern Democrats, including working class white Democrats, to the Republican Party and to the racist agenda uh, set in the, uh, the Reagan years. Actually set in the Nixon, but, you know, Rockefeller was something of an exception. But the point is here that only social movements can challenge the hegemony of Republicans and the old right in the Southern white uh, working class. Of course, the migration of Northerners to the South, one of the great migrations in history, middle-class voters from the West or the Northeast who moved to Georgia or Texas are much easier to convert or, or to keep as, uh, as Democrats. But we see in so many ways the very long-term consequences of the failure of something called Operation Dixie after the Second World War, the CIO's major attempt to organize Southern workers on a non-racial basis. And it was defeated both by cold, the Cold War amongst uh, labor unions themselves, but also by the massive local power uh, exercised by business elites in the South. Now, the candidate who most clearly championed uh, social democratic politics in this in the Democratic primary was Bernie Sanders, who came who ran a strong campaign, but it ended after Biden's remarkable success in the South Carolina primary, uh, not least owing to the support he received from black Southern voters. Why do you think Biden ultimately won out? Was it the strength of the DNC establishment and Obama's obvious preference for his candidacy? Or did Sanders fail to persuade voters that a socialist could defeat Trump? Do you see a future for the kind of politics that Sanders embodies? Bernie's an interesting character. 
like Jesse Jackson, a generation earlier, uh, back in the 1980s, he is competitive and attractive to voters that other Democrats can't possibly reach, such as the alienated uh, uh, Rust Belt whites uh, that we were just talking about. He's ran so much stronger than Clinton or Biden in many of the uh, crucial states. But the factors that you allude to, I think, are right, together with unprecedented mobilization by mainstream Democrats against Sanders. And, of course, the fact that all the other candidates immediately jumped to Biden's side was an important factor. Nonetheless, the American politics have been revolutionized as the alt-right has captured the Republican Party. Socialism has become, at least as uh, a vague concept, a lodestar for millions and millions of people, certainly for people under 30. But also, uh, I mean, look at this strength that uh, Sanders showed amongst uh, Latino voters. I mean, the fact is that in South Carolina and in the South, you have political, democratic political machines built by the civil rights movement in a continually hostile environment that have great loyalty, particularly from older black uh, uh, voters. And it's clear Sanders didn't have much impact there. For me, I thought that campaign was a great victory. If Bernie had won, can you imagine this situation uh, that he would be facing now? even if he won the presidency, probably unable to govern. But he has put progressives in a very powerful position in the new Congress to come. The thing that I thought was, however, a very tragic mistake was in the negotiations with the Biden camp to give up on Medicare for all. This was this unnecessary strategic Concession, And, of course, it couldn't come at a more uh, remarkable time when suddenly it's obvious that uh, universal health care, single-payer health care, is a life-and-death matter for millions of, of, of Americans. Uh, insurance companies have made billions uh, out of uh, the coronavirus. And 10 million Americans have lost their existing health care. But by conceding on this question, it's in a way uh, excluded that central demand of the Sanders campaign from framing the debate over coronavirus. But if I might add one other thing, we're in a very strange transitional moment. The Sanders campaign ran basically on the idea of socioeconomic rights as proposed by the left New Dealers in Roosevelt's fourth-term campaign in 1944. And in a sense, it was an, an attempt to catch up 50 or 60 years later to what occurred right after the war in most of Northern and, and Western Europe, where such rights were enshrined formally or, or informally. But now we're in a situation that looks more like the 1930s and where truly radical demands, system-changing, you know, demands 
I, are increasingly seen by people as, as necessary, particularly amongst younger people. We saw some of those demands also being raised in the protests that swept much of the country uh, in the summer after the killing of George Floyd. I mean, sort of deeper and and uh, more radical questions about the nature of policing and uh, mass incarceration in American society. I, you know, we talk about uh, what could be foreseen and not foreseen. I never thought in my lifetime see a serious movement supported by millions of people demanding root and branch reconstruction of public safety and an end to oppressive racist uh, police culture. I mean, this has been an extraordinary thing to have happen. And it shows how in this period, demands can leap over intermediary phases. I mean, what the mainstream Democrats want are little reforms here and there, weed out the bad cops. But the generation that's now entering the electorate is different from any other that we've seen in modern American political history. I have two kids who are still in high school, and when I try and explain to them, they're too young to vote, but when I explain to them the necessity of voting for Biden, I feel like I'm a Menshevik talking to a group of Bolsheviks. And it's true for all their friends. They go to an inner-city high school. Their friends are all black, like my younger children, Mexican. And all these kids, it's either radical system change and reform or nothing. And uh, you could say maybe my kids grew up in an obviously radical household, but their friends didn't. And they share the same uh, uh, spirit. They do not believe in anything less than, say, what the Sanders campaign represented. Now, the thing about Black Lives Matter is it rescued all the activism that had been built up in the Sanders campaign. Because remember, Sanders and uh, his campaign were telling everybody uh, this is a dual strategy. We're building a movement and we're also building uh, political power. But when push came to shove in January, where was the movement? Where was the movement building a lot? And as I'm sure you've encountered or anyone who's listening in the United States, there's a massive disenchantment. Young people were incredibly depressed. They didn't know what to do. Black Lives Matter saved that activism, brought it back out in the streets and showed the power uh, that the streets have and the necessity of a radical politics to a younger generation, regardless of whether their parents marched in the or their grandparents marched in the 60s or not. They've arrived at this place through a combination of facing the erosion and destruction of the achievements of the civil rights movement on one hand and the kind of mass immiseration of young college graduates uh, on the other, which will become worse. I saw teaching at my university, uh, UC Riverside, the only campus that actually looks like Cal- UC campus that actually looks like California sociologically. And first generation college students whose parents made huge sacrifices to get them into college, suddenly faced with the fact that they can fulfill their, their parents' dreams that they were, you know, still going to be dependent on their parents' sacrifices, end up in marginal jobs, 
and the, the deep tragedy and bitterness uh, to this that's been recycled. Of course, even for middle, comfortable middle class kids who suddenly find themselves in the contingent economy. And, and, and as you said, this you know this uh, this period in American history does stir memories of, as you said, the 1930s, the hungry years, the Great Depression, the radicalization of politics that took place in that era. And, you know, I've noticed that um, that in your writing on the Trump administration, you you haven't refrained from analogies with with fascism, even with Nazism. I'm thinking of your uh, the piece you wrote in the in the Los Angeles uh, Review of Books about the way Republicans have described the elderly as somehow unworthy of life amid the COVID crisis. Now, as you probably know, there's a current on the left that sees such analogies as not only inaccurate, but actually misleading because uh, it said they direct our attention to the history of fascism in Europe rather than to our own history. But uh, you insist on the analogy, and I'm wondering, what do you think the analogy or these references to the 1930s and to the sort of fascist spirit of politics, what do they help us to see? Well, I recently, uh, last fall, reread uh, all the books I have, Classical Analysis of Fascism by the Left in the 30s and the 40s, and then looked at much of the uh, contemporary historical literature. And of course, there are people who would say, for instance, that National Socialism was not fascism. If you adopt Italy as as the model, as as the uh, template. People are splitting hairs over whether clerical fascist regimes in places like Croatia and Hungary were really fascist or not. And clearly in terms of an organized ideological movement based on uh, an armed membership, the analogies uh, aren't necessarily very clear, but the class base of it is clear. You shouldn't forget that uh, fascism throughout Europe was a movement of the petty bourgeoisie, of uh, downwardly mobile middle classes, state officials, lawyers, professors in universities that had won over younger members of the working class undoubtedly, but that was not its social base. And the social base of Trumpism is exactly the kind of constellation of interests and prejudices that supported fascism in the 1920s and 1930s. And now we've seen the rise of what can only be called the kind of American fry corps, uh, you know, of armed militias praised and in, invoked by the president of, of the United States. I mean, obviously, we live in a different era, but the fascist precedent is something we simply cannot ignore. Unless you really want to split hairs in ways that I don't think are very productive of concrete political and social analysis. And I see uh, there's a major headline, I think, in The Guardian the other day, uh, about an academic study which had discovered that there were so many similarities structurally, ideologically, between, for instance, Orban's movement in in Hungary or uh, with the Italian uh, right, with Poland. And certainly Trumpism has 
vigorously identified with those movements. I think in some ways we're very similar to what was going on in the late 1920s in Central and Eastern Europe before the advent of uh, fully fascist regimes, which then reshaped themselves uh, to the model of Italian and German fascism. I mean, Trumpism obviously has fed steroids hugely. And you also have the analogy of of older elites who in an earlier era would have uh, avoided association with that politics, who have rationalized it and come to support it because it serves their interests. Well, I mean, the Trump regime is, let's put it bluntly, is a whorehouse. And the Congress is full of willing uh, Republican whores. And uh, the prostitution of, of any remnant sense of political integrity on the part of the Republicans. And of course, Trumpism will continue without uh, Trump. I mean, one of the major victories, I think, if Biden wins next week, will be Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, who's a uh, Marine, much decorated Marine uh, uh, veteran, who is an extremely powerful, charismatic speaker, and actually for several years, he's been widely seen as the person to carry on Trumpian politics after Trump. So, and he notor- and he notoriously called for federal troops to be sent to uh, uh, Seattle, I think it was, or Portland, to repress demonstrations. Yeah, no, I mean this. You know, I I think in some ways because he's far more competent and intelligent than Trump. And given the fact that Biden will inherit a broken economy, which is not going to be fixed by a single stimulus package or, you know, $2 trillion in relief to small businesses and wages, there's every possibility that that Trump base could continue to grow and even expand. Uh, Mike, one of the central features of Trump's misrule, which uh, he shares actually with fascist politics, has been the attack on reason and truth, and especially scientific truth. As you've noted, uh, the day after he was inaugurated, he defunded an early warning system for dealing with diseases. Um, Now, the attack on science is hardly new in American society. Social Darwinism and race science were a veritable creed in the late 19th and early 20th century. But it's hard to imagine even a Republican president like George W. Bush engaging in the kind of denialism that, that has marked Trump's response to COVID. What's your take on Trump's wild attacks on the scientific establishment and others who've tried to make him aware of the dangers of the virus and the necessity of mask wearing? Well, actually, I think Trump has done his service by becoming the leader of all that's occult, irrational and superstitious because it's politicizing science on so many levels. Every major scientific journal of record has come out against the Trump administration. The scientists are politicized in ways that were almost unimaginable four or five years ago. And of course, in the healthcare sector, doctors, nurses, assistants, janitors, you know, uh, a workforce that if you take the largest definition of it, is 17% of the American workforce has undergone its own transformation by labor protests and protests against unsafe working conditions, but also by the tremendous 
neglect of investment in public health uh, for decades. If we look for the social conscious conscious of, of, of the United States right now, we find it in the nurses and in the nurses union, through the major union to support uh, Bernie Sanders. So in many ways, science, science has had uh, itself to, to go out, in, out in the streets. And one of the untold stories of, of the pandemic, and I suppose about the only silver lining I can think of, it's been astonishing international scientific cooperation, led by the Chinese to begin with, who within barely a week uh, shared the uh, genetics of the coronavirus with scientists across the world. And uh, the world seems to decline into ever more rabid neo-nationalism. The scientific community is acting uh, in a very internationalist uh, fashion. Now, this is something that didn't happen in the 60s. One of the defeats of the New Left in the 60s, a kind of self-administered defeat, was his failure to try and organize the other side of campus for the engineering, medical, and science faculties work. That could have made a huge, a huge difference. But there's a new calculus today. And uh, you talk to scientists. I do... The only organization I actually belong to is not the Revolutionary Marxist League for the Red Terror. Uh, it's the American Geophysical Union. And uh, because I'm interested in paleoclimatology uh, and earth science, it's, uh, it's been remarkable to see the change that's occurred in this community. First of all, in terms of confronting uh, racism within the earth sciences, and the need for strong affirmative action, but the growing sense that uh, the Republican Party uh, is almost as dangerous, potentially more dangerous to humanity than was National Socialism in the 30s and 40s. No group has played a larger role in preventing action on climate change, for example. What does it mean to you to think politically about ecology and nature? I mean, are there also risks in today's environmental politics. I mean, I'm thinking of Malthusian appeals regarding population control, which have so often underwritten racist policies in the developing world. And there are still echoes of that on the fringes of the environmental movement. It's also a fragmentation that's contrary to the widespread belief amongst uh, most environmental activists that crises are converging and that you can't draw simple boundaries between climate change, uh, and world hunger, for instance. And the problem with the environmental movement, uh, at least the one in my own backyard, which I've been complaining about for more than 30 years, is you should never advance a conservationist environmental demand without including in it some provision for the employment of inner-city youth, of kids in general, the environmental movement has allowed the job-destroying caricature of their movement to become, uh, you know, incredibly popular. And it should be absolutely the opposite. And you see that, for instance, in the case of the great conflagrations that have swept California since the beginning of August. 
the California Conservation Corps, which is a kind of latter-day recreation of the famous Civilian Conservation Corps of the 30s, uh, is an incredibly successful program that only has funding to hire 2,000 young people at a time. It should be expanded to 50,000 people. We really want to deal with fire danger and climate change in California. You need, you know, an army of uh, forestry workers and environmentally, uh, uh, you know, educated uh, conservation uh, crews out there. Uh, And by the way, California has got by on the cheap fighting fires by the fact that 40% of the fire line are convicts who get paid less, a dollar an hour or less. This is slave labor. It has to end. Youth employment schemes have to be integral parts of whatever uh, a new Green New Deal will become. And I must say, I have my own doubts about the idea of the Green New Deal. I suspect that uh, AOC would sign on to that demand. Um, I I want to turn back to the question of COVID-19. You warned of a global pandemic in your book on the avian flu, uh, which is just coming out again as the monster enters. Um, And in a recent interview, you said, we have to realize this isn't a pandemic. It's the beginning of an age of pandemics. Can you unpack what you mean by that? Well, the U.S.'s uh, PREDICT program, which uh, I believe in March Trump ended the funding for was a massive, uh, supported by State Department, USAID, with massive cooperation between something called the EcoHealth Alliance, which is an NGO based in, in New York, and U.S. government workers and epidemiologists all around the world focused on the question of emergent viruses from animal populations and on the relationship between deforestation and human contact with uh, previously uh, uncontacted uh, or remote reservoirs, animal reservoirs of viruses. And their research, especially successful in studying bats, and out of this program and research by the vilified, but I think very heroic people, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They started searching uh, for new viruses amongst these enormous bat colonies that exist in the cavern landscapes of Yunnan and other parts of southwest China, immediately identified 150 new coronaviruses that could be capable of being transmitted to humans uh, directly or, or via animals. Internationally, they studied about 10% of bat species. Now, the largest group of mammals on Earth fly. They're bats. There's 1,500 species. So it turns out that there's this incredible reservoir of, of viruses. Coronaviruses were not taken seriously until the outbreak of SARS in 2003, 2004, uh, coronavirus today is very similar to SARS, except in the case of SARS, you uh, transmitted the disease when you showed symptoms. So asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic transmission 
uh, largely didn't occur, which made it possible to contain and management. But anyway, this predict program showed that because deforestation in the tropical, uh, subtropical parts of the world, we're essentially releasing thousands, maybe tens of thousands of animal viruses uh, that previously haven't affected human beings except maybe on a local scale. And, of course, both Ebola and HIV came ultimately from bat reservoirs transmitted through the intermediary of, of other animals, HIV uh, primates, Ebola probably through uh, domesticated animals. That's why there's broad agreement that uh, we're in a new uh, microbiological uh, era where we're going to get hit successively by such uh, dangerous diseases against which our immune systems have no history. Avian flu remains as much a danger today as it was when I wrote the book in 2005. I should also finally point out to you that the Wuhan people, the Institute of Virology people, the Chinese researchers, uh, published an article last year where they warned that a major coronavirus outbreak was imminent and probably unavoidable. This was no surprise to people who were actively studying emergent viruses at all. We were forewarned, uh, in fact, a hundred times about the threat of a pandemic. Fifteen years of government planning gone into creating uh, strategic plans for response to influenza, avian flu, or to what was called virus X, the belief that it might be something which we hadn't even thought about, like coronaviruses. You know, Mike, I, I think that if, if there are two takeaways from our conversation, it's that, one, uh, we can expect to see more pandemics, and, and two, that the uh, political pandemic that is Trumpism is not going to fade away uh, even if uh, uh, Trump uh, loses the election. And um, you've long been depicted or caricatured as a Marxist prophet of doom. And I know that caricature has rubbed you the wrong way as it should. Now that your warnings about viruses and forest fires have been vindicated, now that people in the mainstream are seeing that climate change is a, is a political issue in fact, that it's the consequence in part of disastrous policy choices. How does it feel? I mean, do you take a grim pleasure in having been right all these years? Of course not. I tend to write about things that scare me to death, which is why I wrote the book on avian flu, although it's also part of a larger project of writing about globalization in the late 19th century in an age of uh, artificial famine or with car bombs. Uh, avian flu seemed to be, you know, uh, a perfect case of the, the risk of economic globalization. When you have children, particularly younger children, growing up in this period with all the weight of the future of the world on their shoulders, you can only feel, I think, in some ways ashamed of yourself and what you or your generation failed to accomplish, but we're in, uh, I believe, the terminal era of global capitalism, apocalyptic capitalism, because 
I think you can mount overwhelming arguments that say that capitalism is no longer a job machine. It creates unemployment and marginalization, not new jobs. And the job crisis on this planet is every bit as important as global warming. Capitalism cannot decarbonize the world economy fast enough. It cannot as long as big pharma and private medicine stand in the way turn revolutionary advances in genetic sequencing and biodesign into public health. It cannot disarm the world, the great missing issue in the debates, of course, both the primary and the presidential debate was the uh, erosion and destruction of important nuclear treaties, making nuclear war uh, more likely, at least on a regional scale, than ever before. The FAO has been warning us for more than a decade that we need to increase grain production by at least 50% to feed the population of the world at its maximum by mid-century. Human race will never be larger than it will be when my kids are beginning to, younger kids are uh, hitting middle age. And there's every potential to achieve food security but we're not. Industrial agriculture and uh, the meat-producing industries, you know, stand in the way of it. One could go on and on. Uh, Any belief that we now, I mean, Marxists, of course, have always been predicting the last um, economic crisis or the end of of, of capitalism, which in some ways makes it difficult to to say this out loud. But we're in a, a, a terminal stage. And at threat is the poorest quarter of humanity, the ones that we have built walls against, the ones that we ignore when they drown by the hundreds in the Mediterranean or fester in shanty towns along the U.S.-Mexican border. People who absolutely have to migrate because of climate change and its impacts on agriculture throughout the world. The fact that uh, the current administration has taken uh, an American first position that basically says Africa lasts, poor countries last. The only major world leader who consistently articulates a view of universal human survival and human unity is that Argentine soccer player who lives in the big mansion in Rome. We don't know whether as pages or dies, who else will speak that? I don't know. Maybe the Dalai Lama. But the world left, the international left, has always been the tribune of the wretched of the earth, has become more or less silent on these questions. This huge renaissance of uh, uh, the left in America, the new, new left, has its own problems with internationalism. as just the Sanders progressive movement. You never heard anything about uh, poor countries or, you know, world health during the presidential debates. We're totally inward looking. In that sense, it reflects the very narrow parochial prism of Trumpism itself. Yes, it does. And this is something, you know, that needs to be better elucidated by historians and political analysts, which is the tropism toward the right that has been built into the whole Reagan period, and the need to contest the fundamental premises of 
conservative views and philosophies to contest what passes for uh, liberalism in an age where 70 and 80-year-old wealthy Democrats still control uh, Congress. And this is why I, I see much hope in that a younger generation spontaneously and out of their own conditions and the way they uh, visualize their own future have taken an in increasingly intransigent attitude uh, toward this. But the danger is that, as uh, was once said of the British Army, you can have a movement of lions, but it might be led by donkeys. We've got to get rid of the donkeys. We need lions to lead lions. Mike, thanks so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you for joining us on the London Review of Books podcast. My guest has been Mike Davis. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.